Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am your host, Dan Lust, joined this week by a trifecta of young, strapping gentlemen, Zach Bryson, Evan Mattel, and John Nucci, collectively. What's up, gang? How's it going? How's it going? going? Pretty good, Dan. How are you doing, Dan? Okay. I always ask that question, a group of three on Zoom, you never know how it's going to go, but we, we all got the routine by now. Three topics on the docket today. We're going to talk about the latest in the Live slash PGA saga, which I think has kind of opened back up Pandora's box. But we have, of course, our golf law guy, uh, John Nucci, to talk about it. We've got a couple requests to talk about Otani. Um, I think probably the story has been written. The CBA has been analyzed. So we'll talk about the Shohei Otani $700 million contract. And last but not least, a story that we covered a lot, uh, John Morant. He is now uh, pseudo, pseudo in court. You know, we talked about John Morant with recidivism, you know, him, him getting suspended the second time. Uh, and it's kind of apropos as we have Draymond Green getting suspended for a second time. Uh, we'll certainly talk about that. And if there is time permitting, we I, I did some commentary on the dead spin potential defamation case regarding that young Chiefs fan that was claimed to have been in blackface, but that wasn't entirely true. So we, um, we'll talk about that. If people are looking for the college sports edition, huge news in the college sports world. We are not covering that here. We will cover that next, that next week. Try to get a big guest for that in the college sports world. But three big NIL lawsuits, as well as a big uh, decision with respect to the transfer portal um, in court. But we are going to save that for next week. Taryn, myself, Mike Lawson, and again, we'll try to get a special guest. And in addition to the topics that we're going to talk about today... We have a special guest on the show, Gavin White. Who is Gavin White? The Gavin White, who won the Dr. Pepper Halftime Challenge when Oklahoma State played Texas. And, you know, thanks to the listeners of this podcast, and maybe yours truly with a little bit of a hockey assist, Gavin is coming on to talk about his path from losing the Dr. Pepper Challenge to being the source of a million viral tweets and having everyone tweeting at him um, to winning $100,000 because of uh, some... Uh, injustice that occurred, but Gavin reached out. And he was very, uh, sent me a really nice note on Instagram. And um, we started going back and forth. And I said, Gavin, I'd love for you to tell the story on the podcast. So uh, we have him. So we'll, we'll drop this, um, we'll drop this into the episode somewhere. But uh, Gavin uh, was lovely. So uh, shout out to Gavin, but you guys will hear the interview momentarily. Okay. That being said, show sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Zach, what is Themis Bar Review? Is it the top bar prep company in the – you fill in the blank. You, I think you know the answer. Uh, you know, Dan, I'm going to have to say it's the top bar prep company in the world. World. Well, I've said Galaxy, so you just insulted Themis by delineating them to the world. Um, Galaxy. Aliens use Themis Bar Review. It's fantastic. It's getting that time of the year. Start thinking about bar prep. And if you're thinking about bar prep, use Themis Bar Review. Okay. Time to get into the docket. John, I immediately thought of you. So you go through these ebbs and flows. Sometimes I don't see any John Nucci on Twitter. And then I see a lot of John Nucci. So there was a big story. I thought of you immediately. John Rahm all of a sudden was poached by Liv. And if you had told us the story, I don't know, two years ago. Okay, like everyone's getting poached by Liv. But was it two years ago, a year and a half ago? Eh, that, that yeah, two years. Uh, Liv like just started June 22. In the height of uh, Cam Smith and all those guys defecting, if you had told me John Rahm was going, it wouldn't shock me, just with all the international uh, guys potentially going. John Rahm defecting to live in December of 2023, while we thought there was supposed to be some ceasefire between Liv and PGA, 
maybe to most of us, not you, John, I know you're, you're aware of some developments, but that is certainly newsworthy. So John, explain it to us like we're five. How is it possible that the Live Tour is still poaching players when there was supposed to be a settlement, there was supposed to be a merger, then there was a partnership? How on earth is this possible in December of 2023? So yeah, the I, I like to call it D-Day because it was on June 6th, but that is when the framework agreement between the PGA Tour uh, and the Public Investment Fund um, kind of went public. That's when we saw Jay Monahan, PGA Tour Commissioner, uh, along with Yasir Al-Rumayan on CNBC, sitting side by side after months of bitter litigation, talking about how everything was uh, swept under the rug and everything was fine. They entered into a uh, framework agreement at that point. However, the only binding part of that framework agreement was that the litigation would end between the parties. Uh, there was another clause of that framework agreement, which this clause may have been binding as well, but there was a no poaching clause that effectively said, we are going to try to target a December 31st date to come to terms on a definitive agreement. And during that time, uh, neither side will try to poach the other's players, which at the time it was really kind of a one way street because PGA Tour wasn't trying to poach uh, live players. They were suspending them. After some pushback by uh, Congress and, and the DOJ, they removed that. So it was kind of open season. Now that uh, there's some reports that the talks are falling apart a little bit uh, or that PIP is maybe a little pissed off at, at the, the speed of the negotiations. So uh, they decided to go scorched earth and start spending another billion dollars on some players. And that's where we stand today. Okay. I, I have the question here, and I know you and I spoke about it. As you and I were texting, I was actually, this was last week. So you and I were texting on December 7th. I was in traffic court for a personal ticket of mine while attempting to tweet um, and defending myself vigorously from this uh, blasphemous traffic ticket, but neither here nor there. So the first question I had for you, John, I, I don't know how this case, but what was, by the way, what was the amount for Rob? What was the reported amount? It's it's been between three and six hundred. I, I think the final number what I last I heard was five five hundred and fifty million dollars. Okay. And just because you we're we're talking about a lot of a complicated topic, the billion dollars that Piff was gonna spend, what was that what were they gonna spend it on? The one that you just referenced? Uh well that was on a few players. So it was John Rahm's approximately six hundred million. Uh and then there were there were uh floating reports about Tony Finau, Tyrrell Hatton, Tommy Fleetwood. A lot of different guys that uh, I, I kind of ballparking maybe around a billion. Okay. So the reason I ask you that, there was a point in time, and I didn't recall it being June 6th, but I'll take your word for it, where the case was really picking up steam. So we, I remember you came on the podcast and we laughed and it's like, how did the lawyers on the PGA side, what was the number that the lawyers spent in legal fees up until like point? $52 like, million dollars or something? Yeah, it was like $52 million. And like for me, and we'll talk about different cases that are going on, but this was a case that was like pre-deposition. It was like pre-trial, pre the real heavy part of what a case should be. And I remember you and I were on, I'm like, how on earth did they spend $50 million when you haven't got to the meat of the depositions yet? So I think that was a lot of the impetus to settle this case is like, let's settle before we have depositions and we spend all this extra money. And you know, secrets come out and we get asked questions about um, on the on live side, we get asked questions about the substance of the PIF, uh, you know, uh, the public investment fund, where money is going, how uh, if how Saudi Arabia is connected to live and all these kind of ugly questions. And I said at the time, 
the reason that Liv probably wanted to settle was to avoid this aspect of the case. And for the PGA's perspective, I think you and I came to the consensus that like the PGA was spending so much money in this arms race in court that they wanted to cut end the bleeding right there. So both sides have a reason to settle come June 6th. Now, you'll have to explain this to me, uh, Evan, Zach, and the listeners of this podcast. How on earth is there a settlement reached whereby Liv is still somehow allowed to compete with the PGA? And I understand that that was maybe the intention of the parties to try to get this as some type of a merger, right? But this case, my understanding was, John, discontinued with prejudice. This case is out of court. They can't bring it back. It wasn't adjourned indefinitely. They have to redo the whole litigation. And, and when you dismiss something with prejudice, you can't really bring it back. Um, so A, I, I think it was right that it was dismissed with prejudice, but B, like, well, yeah, so like, well, you can't bring the case back anymore. So how do you allow this case to disappear if you're the PGA, right? Like, this was a case that maybe they were going to win on, you know, maybe they had the leverage, maybe they didn't. But I, I find it very odd that this case disappears and the framework of the settlement is is not done. They don't have people looking at it for a potential approval. Whoever told them that the DOJ was going to approve this, um, maybe they were wrong. But I'll, I'll leave that to you, John. I know I'm giving you a lot, but uh, I think you know where we want to go with this. Yeah, I mean, it's a valid question. And I think the PGA Tour was genuinely under a lot of financial pressure. There was talks that they had to tap into the reserves just to start uh, paying their legal fees. They, in response to live, they increased all of their uh, prize purses. They're now trying to lean, get more money from sponsors. Uh, so, you know, for all the positive changes that the PGA Tour has made and increasing purses and stuff uh, in response to the live threat, doesn't mean that they didn't have a, a significant, significant financial strain on them in doing so. So, I think part of the reason, yes, PGA Tour was in a very good position in terms of the litigation. I think that the public investment fund was just about to be subject to depositions and have to you know, sit, sit for depositions and subject to discovery. But at the same time, the PGA Tour was just kind of bleeding money. Uh, and I think that they uh, kind of saw the writing on the wall and they, they know that PIF is not going to go away. They have somewhat unlimited funds. Uh, Jay Monahan has said in the past, there's, you know, if we, if we, if this is a bidding war, we're not going to win. Uh, you know, they, they have kind of unlimited money. So it, it made sense for the PGA tour at the time to just kind of jump ship and, and come to an agreement that ended all the litigation. It's just kind of crazy that they didn't use that leverage at the time to negotiate something that just said, Liv has got, you know, what's up. I, I see you want to jump in. <laughs> Um, no, I'm getting, I'm getting antsy. You told me something offline, which I think we should, I don't know if it's your theory or I think this is important. And I know it's a question that Evan might, might have afterwards, but like you had told me, and I think this was, we'll say allegedly reportedly all the fun stuff. This is not anyone's direct reporting, but that apparently pre-lawsuit, pre-poaching, pre-live tour, there was a, a version of uh, allegedly reportedly all this fun stuff. Saudi money or PIF, I'm not sure if it had formalized um, to those kind of conversations, but uh, a request made to the PGA, to Jay Monahan, the, the commissioner of the PGA, for some outside investments from, from overseas to be involved with the PGA. And I think the way you phrase it to me again, allegedly, reportedly, is Jay Monahan wouldn't even take those phone calls. And basically getting shot down by the PGA kind of prompted certain individuals in this entity to create the live tour. So I see you nodding. Does that sound right? And then I'll tell you. Uh, yeah. So part, 
for for the most part. So yes, there was uh, this was actually in Alan Shipnuck's book, uh, "Live and Let Die," which is pretty good. Um, Great name. Great name for the book. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, the report was the the public investment fund Yasir Al Rumayan, who is the governor of the public investment fund, offered to invest, make a significant investment in the PGA Tour. I believe it was January 2021. Uh, they wanted to kind of be a title sponsor, inject a boatload of money into the PGA Tour, uh, and become you know kind of a big, big title sponsor and just be involved in the game of golf. It's uh, at least in Alan's book is that he did not. Jay Monahan didn't bring this to the full policy board. Effectively, didn't he said there was no. You know, I don't. I don't know exactly what the terms were used, but essentially did not run that down did not accept that money uh and then just several months later all of a sudden uh live was formed and now they're trying to you know uh blow up the entire sport so it's, it's, this is this is where it's important it's some sort of a precedent with that leaking out or that being in chipnuck's book you and chipnuck are boys at this point i see you you retweet chipnuck a lot because he's on my feed through you but i think it's important like we've had so many conversations about like whether PIF and Saudi money is okay in the WWE and Formula One and soccer and this one, that one, you know, LeBron is saying, I know he was joking, but like, you know, he was joking about the, uh, the money that Cristiano Ronaldo got. Like, I think Giannis had a similar comment, but now if you don't answer their phone calls in your position of power, like Jay Monahan, and they feel financially motivated, the story that's going to be written in the sports law textbooks of live tour is that like either, you know, you you say yes or like they're going to put you out of business so very um akin to the mafioso books but it is, um, Evan, it, is yeah. very, it is very interesting to think about what this entire golf world and landscape would have been if they had you know assuming that all of these reports are true about an investment offer if they had just accepted it at the time it, what this golf world would look like we might have the same purses the same increased everything and a better landscape just you know, with the PGA Tour still in total control, who knows? Yeah, John, I just want to follow up on that real quick. Do you think this could be a framework for other sports that kind of have this independent contractor structure uh, to swoop in and have competitors like the UFC, like NASCAR? It's more individualized. Like I said, independent contractor makes it a lot easier. Um, do you think this is like a framework if Liv is somehow successful in poaching these players and avoiding a lot of the antitrust stuff? Is this like a framework moving forward? You know, I think so. It's not, not out of the realm of possibility. I think the issue that you have with a sport like the PGA Tour, where they're all independent contractors, is there no there's no players union. And there's no, you know, collective group kind of advocating for, uh, you know, the, the greater good. And I think the problem that we see when there's no players union like this is it's kind of ripe for, you know, love them or hate them. Phil Mickelson really tried to point out a bunch of times that PGA Tour didn't really you know, th th there was there was not much advancement uh, for quite a long time. Uh, purses increased when broadcasting rights increased and stuff like that, but uh, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of uh, you know change um, in the PGA Tour. And I think the response from Live and the way that they've gone about it uh, is kind of forced their hand, forced them to change a little bit. I think some of the changes aren't really wanted by fans. Uh, you know, I think part of Live is. Uh, a little gimmicky and i think that's why some fans are pretty turned off to it but um yeah the the independent contractor status that you mentioned and the lack of a players union kind of allows 
a, a governing body to be comfortable um, and, you know, get to the point where uh, maybe they, they don't make the type of advancements or progress that other sports might. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's not out of the realm of possibility um, that we see something like this in the future with other sports that are, that are you know, not, not, not centrally governed by a player's union or something like that. Yeah, just another question here for you, John. So we've talked about how, you know, there was this possible offer in the uh, in the past to, to invest and how there's all of these issues still going on when they're supposed to be working towards getting uh, to a finalized agreement to, to merge. But based on your perspective and everything you've seen and heard, does it really sound like these two parties really want to merge or if that we're just kind of forced into kind of publicly saying that to, to get rid of this litigation? Uh, I do think they still want to merge. I I think what happened here, and again, I, I tweeted this out, and it's really just my own speculation. I think what happened is the PGA Tour Policy Board, they started, and I don't know if it was purposeful, this is, you know, again, pure speculation, but there started being some leaked little reports about the PGA Tour speaking with private equity funds, with Fenway Sports, um, with a couple others, and, and, and kind of talking to private equity funds uh, as an alternative source of investment rather than the public investment fund. Uh, I think what happened is the public investment fund probably got a little pissed off uh, that maybe the policy board was, you know, flirting with other money rather than, uh, you know, making full-blown good faith efforts to negotiate an agreement with them. And I think their response to that, now that the no poaching clause was removed from the framework agreement, was to just throw a bunch of money around try to land a big fish like John Rahm, which they did, and completely change their negotiating position. They are in a much stronger negotiation position this week than they were even just last week. The interesting part about it is John Rahm has had a 400 plus million dollar offer on the table since like the start, uh, since the very beginning. So I am curious, and I don't know the answer, but I'm curious as to what exactly happened that changed his mind. It could be the way that the framework agreement was kept secret and rolled out in June. Maybe he didn't feel like he had to, uh, you know, justify any any type of loyalty to the tour that he had before. I don't know. Or if it's something that happened with the policy board negotiations, because their last meeting was November 13th. Rory resigned on November 14th. Uh, three weeks later, Rahm is gone. And all of a sudden there's other big names that are talking about being gone. Um, so if anything, what live and what the public investment fund is doing now at a minimum will probably kickstart the PGA towards, uh, you know, maybe give them a little, you know, a little jolt. And I think that we'll probably see some significant progress in negotiations all of a sudden. Okay. John, this is why we have you on. You're kind of an encyclopedia. I think it remains to be seen because no one, and I see your tweets on this. I see everything you tweet, John. Nobody's watching live, so they can get John Rahm, they can get Cam Smith, they can get Brooks. If no one's watching it, how long does um, live just want to burn money? But maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point is to, um, as we've kind of alluded to, basically uh, threaten these sports leagues. Unless you have our involvement, we will put you out of business. So interesting, interesting. But John, I know you have a very early morning class, so uh, we'll, let, we'll let you get to it. Your students are taking a 6 a.m. class. Very early. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a unique class that they're taking. Um, were you teaching, by the way, one of our, our sports law professors? Nazareth. Nazareth University in Rochester. 
your first semester in the books, right? First semester? First semester in the books. I submitted my final grades on sports law, right? Sunday or Monday. What's that? Sports law. Sports law. Sports and entertainment. Not golf law. Not golf law. There was a there. I, I did almost an entire class on on antitrust and the PGA Tour and stuff, but it it, it is I, I cover the whole gamut of sports law. I will hit you up for my advanced sports law class in the spring to talk about golf because I need very smart specialist like you, John Nucci. Excellent job, and uh, yeah, go to sleep and make sure you're well rested for your six a.m. totally academic class. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you to John. The rest of the episode is going to be the three of us plus Gavin White. He's going to join us at the end of the episode. Okay, we had a second big topic here. Again, was really the main one that I got outreach from uh, for people to pay attention to. They had a lot of questions. How is this possible? A seven hundred million. I think where this where the legal side popped up on people's radars was the uh, initial initial incorrect. Was it Evan? Was it John Morosi who messed this whole thing up? Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. So John Morosi has a tweet that uh, Shohei Otani is on a plane from L.A. to Toronto. Everyone starts going crazy, very reminiscent when uh, Aaron Judge had signed with my San Francisco Giants for like a hot second and then they didn't sign him. Um, so there's a question about reporting the news wrong, being malicious, all this fun stuff. Not really legal, more just kind of ethical and, and doing your job good, but neither here nor there. So Evan, within a within 24 hours of Blue Jays fans going through, um, you know, intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, nightmares. We do have a signing. Shohei Otani signs with the Dodgers for a reported $700 million. Now, Evan, you could take this in whatever direction you want to go. How true is it that he's getting $700 million deferred payments? Is this allowed under the CBA? Take this in any direction you want to go. And Zach, get, get ready because I know you are just as up to speed on this. Yeah, so obviously Otani was the biggest news in sports, and there's obviously a lot to dive into with his contract as well. So as you said, $700 million, it's unprecedented in most uh, major American sports. Um, so with that came even almost the biggest bombshell that $680 million of that is going to be deferred to the end of his 10-year contract. So 2034, he'll be getting his deferred payments of $680 million, but year to year until then, he's getting $2 million. Um, so we've never really seen a structure like that in the MLB. Uh, the CBA does actually allow for that. Um, so that's agreed upon by the players union and the owners. Uh, there is no limit to deferred payments. So this could be a precedent setting thing. You might see big stars who can afford to defer that payment, uh, do stuff like this. I think Otani's probably in a more unique position than most given the market in Japan. But yeah, it's a huge number. Um, with those deferrals also comes tax implications, California's tax may or may not allow him to get around that with that 10-year deferral. Um, they're they're going to the board right now in California. They said they're going to look into it as well. So this is now... Who's a, going to the board? Who's going to the board? Uh, the state of California was asked, um, the tax board was told Sportico that they're looking into the implications of this deferral and that they're unclear whether the deferral uh, is going to supersede his service time in California um, so that's something to keep an eye on is this if this deferral strategy is for tax purposes, which it would save him a lot of money if it is, um, he may get hit over the head anyway for that. But just something to keep an eye on. That's actually a great point, because although like this is like a victimless crime when it comes to Shohei and the Dodgers. But like California's probably not so happy that they're not getting. Well, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about it. But that's actually I did not know that nugget having great, great research on your part. That's fantastic. 
And then uh, the last part is uh, his contract has uh, three clauses in it. The first one is that if his translator is fired, he can opt out. If the current acting president of baseball operations, I believe his name is Andrew Friedman, is fired, he can opt out. And if the current majority owner of the Dodgers either leaves his post, is relieved of duties, et cetera, he can opt out. So this is the first time I think I've ever seen that in a contract as well. Essentially, the front office signing their own tenure contract with Shohei Otani. Zach, have you ever seen something like that or... You know, what does that make you think about contracts moving forward? Are GM's going to start saying, well, I'm going to sign, you know, Juan Soto, Shohei Otani. But if they if I leave, they could leave, too. I definitely haven't seen it before, uh, Evan. Definitely something that's kind of feels and seems a little bit unprecedented. But when you think about Otani and coming from uh, coming from a team that really wasn't going to build around him or, or made it fairly clear that they weren't willing to spend the money to, to give or to build a team around Shohei, who very much deserves to have, you know, good good tools around him. He's kind of saying, well, I want these people here because they're the ones who got me here. If they get replaced, they might not be willing to spend money. And I might be in a similar situation to what I was towards the end of my contract uh, previously. So I think that's kind of what it's focusing on. Do I think it'll happen a lot going forward is a tough question. Because I think Shohei is a really unique a unique proposition coming from that background. And I don't think they're going to be too excited to, or, or, or too eager to enter into agreements like that. I think it's because Shohei is such a unique talent and because they really, really wanted him, they were, they were kind of willing to willing to give him that flexibility. And then, you know, the, the other thing that I find interesting is that according to some reports, Shohei's the one who, suggested the deferrals like this he's the one who kind of went to the team and said hey why don't we just defer all this money later on to make it more friendly and so you can go out and sign people to to have around me instead of spending all of your money right now on me uh, and so you know again we can have a winning team okay so a c- couple things which we should address we were asked this question i think it's pretty well reported but if you get all of your news solely from us that that's great we'll fill you in once a week maybe sometimes twice a week there is nothing in the MLB CBA that prevents this. There maybe there will be at the next CBA, but as of now, there is no limit on on the percentage of a deal that can be deferred. People might know that from the uh, so-called Bobby Bonilla rule. No one ever felt the need to fix it. Everybody made fun of the Mets for so many years, and all of a sudden the Dodgers do it, and it kind of looks smart. Um, we we I think this has also been well reported. I think the initial market for Otani before the season was also well reported that maybe it was going to be in the vicinity of. 400 million uh, over 10, 500 million over 10. Evan, you're a Yankees fan, correct? I am, indeed. What was the judge what was the judge contract? Ooh, 300. Oh, come on, Evan. You I know, I'm a bad Yankees fan. Was it, I think it was I think it was 360, 360 over 9. Yeah, 360 over 9. Okay, so okay, you have Aaron Judge, that's kind of the market, you know, I think it's safe to say that the season that Judge had from a hitting perspective was as good, if not better, than Otani's, but that's one half the ball. So if you're trying to figure out what Otani's going to get paid for, you know, 360 is certainly your floor. So I don't know, is he going to get paid double, like 720? Is he, you know, just as good of a pitcher as he is a hitter? I don't know. Maybe somebody can make that argument, but it's baseball. Like 700 million is a lot of money. No one's ever received anywhere close to that in the contract. And then also show Shohei's injury, and he's not going to be pitching, I think, until 2025. So 
you know, all of a sudden, any crazy talk about a $700 million contract doubling Aaron Judge's value, which, you know, Shohei Otani is certainly a fantastic player. Is he double Aaron Judge's value? That's that's really hard to say. So when, you know, the injury happens, everyone's like, okay, this could have been a really fun story. I guess not going to get $700 million. That's crazy. Then, Evan, the crazy thing happens, and he does get $700 million. So I, I want to give a quick shout to um, our actual Conduct Detrimentals accountant, Robert Rayola. He's on Twitter at Sports Taxman. He had a tweet on Shohei. He writes, uh, Otani signs with the Dodgers 10 years, $700 million. He will pay 37% in federal, 37 in federal tax, 13% California tax, 2.35 Medicare and Medi, uh, Medicare surcharge. His contract has significant deferrals. He will pay approximately 53.75 in federal, state, and payroll taxes. So, Evan, as you just laid out, what's it, $2 million for the first 10 years? Yep, $2 million for 10 years, so $20 million total for the first 10 years of Shohei Otani. So nothing that Robert said in that tweet was incorrect. I think at that point we didn't know the total deferrals. So I think we knew that there was, quote-unquote, significant deferrals. We didn't know that amount. So I'm going to update for Robert's sake. Um, he got a lot of Q&As. He's been quote-tweeting people. Someone asked the following question, and you might be sitting here as a listener of the podcast. Maybe you're screaming at your phone or whatever you're listening on. And this is a, I think a, fair, a fair question. Someone writes to Robert, is Shohei Otani's deferral dollars taxed at the California rate, parentheses, where it was earned, or has his current residence rate in 10 years when he's making the bulk of that 700 million, really the 690 million for years 11 and beyond. So someone writes, some random guy, if he leaves California after 10 years, I believe that 680 million will be taxed based on his residence at that time. And Robert, our guy writes, that's correct. So according to Robert, he's taxed in 10 years when he leaves California at his residence at that particular Okay, Evan, this is a really important question. Or Zach, whoever can buzz in knows this first. How old is Shohei Otani right now? Zach, I've stumped him. Evan, on me. 29, 29. How old is, oh, next question. See if you guys can get this one. How old is Miguel Cabrera right now in his horrendous uh, career-ending season? 40. Okay. We've seen the age gap get thrown off a little bit by Barry Bonds and that weird era of, of steroids. Miguel Cabrera, Hall of Famer, first ballot guy. He's uh, about to curse here. We won't do it on this podcast for Themis. He has fallen off a cliff. So we're not going to talk about, you know, when people talk about these bloated contracts. This guy is earning X amount of dollars and he's 38 and he's sucking. Shohei Otani, for the entirety of his Major League Baseball career, he'll probably be out of baseball by 39. He'll, he'll play out the remainder and then retire. We're never going to say that about him because he's not earning a crazy amount of money. It's not on the books. It's not counting against the luxury tax. So Shohei Otani, probably by the age of 39, this is my bold prediction, guys, he will not be living in California. He'll probably be living in a different country uh, where he's not, not getting taxed at that 53% rate. So, Evan, to the first point you raised, and I'll open it up to you guys, this is a genius way to structure the contract if you're Shohei Otani. Sure, the Dodgers don't want to get hit with the luxury tax, and and you know, and then that leaves California. So, if California lets this stand, it's going to set a crazy precedent um, for athletes and, and baseball teams. Not every sport can do this. Baseball is one of the only ones that's not a, a pure a pure cap. But um, I don't know, gentlemen, um, what do you think of the precedent set if this contract holds to form? What do you guys think? Yeah, well, I'll just jump in quick. I mean, 
Otani is, is somewhat unique in that he's a foreign-born player, so his, his home country is Japan. If he moves back to Japan, he, he's actually in more trouble than he would staying in the United States uh, for this tax. So Japan has a top tax rate of 45% plus a 10% resident tax, um, and that's not including any compliance with U.S. law. So likely, if he's going to try to do this workaround with deferred payment and tax, he's going to have to move to a state or at least uh, be resident in a state with no income tax to try to avoid all of the California stuff. Now, again, like I brought it at the beginning, the California tax board is looking into this. So this may be an attempt to work around all the taxes, um, but it could end up not working. Um, so I think the result of this could end up setting a good precedent. But I'm assuming if you're a player, at least in California, so that's the Angels, Dodgers, and Padres, which the Padres have some huge contracts, Mike Trout on the Angels, you're probably looking saying, you know, if he's doing this, can I restructure if I'm going to sign there? Oh, and the Giants, you know, um, can I restructure? Can I, if I sign there, can I do these deferrals for, for 10 years? Do I start, you know, extending the years on my contract, take less money and the long road, will it save me tax money? So, yeah, I think this is beyond just a, a baseball contract. This is now like a, a real precedent to be set for athletes in California in general. Yeah, it's definitely definitely going to be really interesting to see how that plays out and then the implications later on. The thing that makes the thing that I think about whenever I, I'm thinking about the deferrals and the impact that it could have, whether or not it works, is in the world of like bands or entertainment, you see a lot of like loan out companies being created where the the performer says that their company is domiciled in this state. They are an employee of that company, and so they're taxed at whatever rate that company or that uh, that state that the company is incorporated in would be. So it makes me think that uh, could that happen here? Would that happen here if this works or doesn't work? And I think it definitely has implications for bigger contracts going forward, especially if it avoids that that huge tax burden. I mean, if he was getting taxed on that $68 million uh, for the deferrals, that's he's getting he's, California gets over over half of that, uh, which is very substantial. So if they're avoiding even a part of that, uh, I think that athletes and, and high earners in, in a lot of different sports are probably going to follow suit. So just one thing to add here, uh, you know, I, I try to be a historian for our podcast for sports law. We the only other time we've talked about a contract structure like this that seemed a little peculiar was the Deshaun Watson $1 million base for that first year when we all expected a massive suspension and he would lose a percentage of his salary for the time he was suspended. So if you're the Cleveland Browns and you're structuring a five-year contract for $230 million um, and you want your player to be happy, yeah, making the first year worth only a million and putting the rest of that $229 million in years two through five, like it's a pretty good move. So yeah, I don't. I mean, they certainly didn't raise the same questions here from a tax perspective, and we were dealing with one year of a suspicious salary. Um, and I, I know Cleveland Browns fans are very quick to yell at me that sometimes the Browns just make it one million on the first year for cap purposes. And I don't pretend to be a salary cap expert by any means. We have never seen a deal of the magnitude a of the total size of Shohei Otani. So, yeah, Evan, to your little footnote that you put in the beginning, whether this will get um, you know scrutiny from California. Certainly very interesting. 
and maybe uh you know maybe japan's gonna like to have some of that money i don't know i have no idea what the what the japanese tax system is like but let's assume for our purposes that shohei otani goes back to japan um i don't know would be would be very interesting the other thing the only other thing that we haven't added there's i got a lot of questions like shohei is earning uh two million a year how's he supposed to live in some giant mansion there are reports um i mean shohei otani has personal media that follow him around from game to game the guy is a marketing like machine there are reports that he's making anywhere between 30 and 40 million dollars just on marketing so the guy's not going to the poorhouse if he's making 40 million dollars a year between his 2 million uh, on the field and 38 million off he's doing just fine so the future generations of otani seem to be do doing okay here uh evan you have anything else to add on this i see you're you're uh you're ready to roll no, no, I'm good. I think you, we we hit it pretty deep. There's a lot in that contract, so I think we I think we covered all of it. I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay, last topic, and then uh, we'll uh, see if we can add any kind of um, add-ons at the end. We'll do our best bet segment. Zach, I'm going to start with you on the hot seat over here. I did allude. We're going to cover some NBA, some hardwood. Before we talk about John Moran, um, again, put your boys on the hot seat here. Did anybody see the Draymond Green assault that occurred last night? Both of you are nodding. Yes. Okay. Do we think that was uh, assault? Like assault, assault? I don't know if it's assault. I think there's probably assumption of the risk playing a sport like basketball where there's there's physical contact. Assumption of the, assumption of the risk when you're playing against Draymond Green. I think yeah. you <laughs> expect the unexpected at this point. Yeah, and he just got hit with an indefinite suspension, which I think is the first time I've seen that for on-the-court antics at least. Kyrie got an indefinite suspension last year, not from an on-the-court incident, but yeah. his anti-Semitic comments. Yeah, yeah. So this is the first time I've seen it for on-the-court stuff. And I mean, you know, it's just, it's unfortunately just Draymond being Draymond at this point. This is like the eighth time that I can think of that he's hit someone intentionally on the court. And if you watch it last night, he tried to defend himself in the press conference. He didn't see him or whatever. I mean, he swung around full 180, arm extended, and hit him with a headshot. He's just he's just that kind of player and and you know God knows how long the suspension is going to be but I think this is just the this is just who Draymond Green is at this point. Well, the reason we bring it up, the topic for this one, I mean, we talked about recidivism, which uh, I think people will understand as a concept in criminal law that you want to kind of punish someone so that they don't do the bad act again. And if they go out and they do the bad act again, clearly the recidivism, uh, your your incentive to create someone um, some type of structure to not do the same bad act. You need a little bit more of an incentive. So earlier this year, we, um, I, it wasn't that long ago. It was about a month ago. Draymond's in that game against the, the Timberwolves and basically puts Rudy Gobert in a, in a legitimate chokehold. We can joke about assault and assumption of the risk, but like, I don't know. Like, I, I think you can get hit um, in a basketball game. Getting choked by another player, I don't really think that happens that often. And if you watch what happened in that in that particular incident, like, Rudy Gobert, like, I don't know. I think he may have pulled Clay's shirt, jersey or something, but he got a legitimate chokehold from Draymond, and he wasn't really fighting back. So the optics of that were really bad. And, and anybody that knows the history of Draymond with kicks to the groin area, you know, going way, way back, he's got a long laundry list of of incidents. And I think Draymond's been on record and saying, like, that's just the way he plays. That's his physical style. He can't really remove that from his game. But, again, we talk about it. Playing sports professionally is a privilege. It's not a right. And there are rules to the game. Yeah, sometimes you officiate certain players differently. But Draymond is now have a very close 
you know, uh, microscope on him. So a month ago, he was suspended for five games for a, a chokehold on another player. For him, one month later, and, and I mean, we talked on the podcast last year, he punched out Jordan Poole, like knocked him unconscious and basically threw off the Warriors entire season. So those are just like three or four incidents that Draymond's had. So Evan, it doesn't shock me at all that he's getting an indefinite suspension similar to Kyrie last year because Adam Silver doesn't know what to do with him. How many games are you supposed to punish him for? How is he going to learn? So, you know, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll monitor that situation. But that brings us really to John Morant. John Morant got last year, and we talked about this somewhat recently on the show. What was the first suspension, guys? Was it was it an eight-game suspension, the one that uh, he got credit for time served? Was it eight? Yeah, the first, first suspension was for eight games, and then it extended to, uh, I think, 25 was the, the full 25. length of the total one. So we're not going to relitigate the whole saga. And, and Zach, I'll, I'll let you kind of roll with this. But, like, John Moran had, like, six or seven things, one of which we're going to talk about. He had the finish. I think it was a finish line. or was an athlete's foot. There was, like, a, his sister's volleyball game. There was, uh, you know, the, the strip club. There was, like, the, there was the laser pointers at the Pacers game. There was a lot of things. He wasn't punished, really, for any of them. And all of a sudden, this mountain wave hit and – Adam Silver goes, you know what? We're going to spend him for eight games. He lost the Powerade deal. He lost some you know, marketing deals. I think he got hurt on a shoe deal. So he felt the pain of uh, a big punishment. And, you know, basically a week or two after the season was over, John Morant's out toting his gun around and gets his 25-game suspension. So just as we are about to see the return of John Morant to the court, we have a story perking up that we have not covered on the show, which, um, Evan, you brought to my attention. And, um, I think it's important. John Moran is currently in court because of uh, an alleged assault during that that um, pickup game by that teenager. So, Zach, tell us what we know at this stage on that case. I know, Evan, you've, you've dove into the research as well. But um, it's a case that somewhat has flown underneath the radar and one that we should be paying attention to as a superstar heads back to uh, the hardwood. Yeah, it was really interesting. He's going back to court in in two senses: one, the courthouse, and then two, getting getting close to being back on the actual basketball court. But as he gets ready to to come back to that basketball court, the case in question uh, comes from a pickup basketball game that he had with a Joshua Holloway, who was 17 years old at the time. Uh, and during this pickup game, Holloway claims that he was assaulted by Morant, and Morant claims that he was acting in self defense; that he was feeling threatened that he was getting ready to be fought or uh, or things along those lines. And since that occurred, uh, there's been a civil suit brought. And the hearing going on now, from what I understand, is with regards to an immunity hearing, whether he acted in self-defense since the game happened on his, you know, the pickup game was happening at his house, whether that's going to work and be a defense or whether this case can continue. And if it continues, that's probably not a good look for someone who's supposedly about to come back from a 25 game suspension. I'm so happy that you brought up immunity hearing because I had asked Evan to do some special research into immunity hearings. So that is not the concept that I, that I've, I have encountered. It's not one that's come up on the podcast. So Evan, what have, what have you learned about immunity hearings? Because I'm like, this is very odd to be at trial this quickly. Why are we in court? Why are we getting artist renderings uh, and Kevin Love references in the courtroom? But Evan, give us what an immunity hearing is and then maybe uh, what you're, you're seeing on the on the social bandwidth about this case so far. 
Yeah, so an immunity hearing, at least in uh, regards to Tennessee, it's House Bill 2660, for those who are interested. Um, <laughs> no no one is interested. <laughs> <laughs> so in a, in a civil suit, the defendant can assert a responsive pleading or motion. And in that, if the defendant's use of for- force or threatened use of force was justified, and because it was justified, they have immunity from the from the suit, then there's an immunity hearing to determine that. Um, so essentially, it's a self-defense hearing. Um, nice little cameo from Zach's cat. Love that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so an immunity hearing, is, is it seems like it's just a way to get a self-defense uh, defense uh, out of the way before going to trial. It's uh, you. We were I, we, I know we were talking offline. I'm like, what is he in court for? Is it like like an immunity hearing? So yeah, interesting. So the question is, and and I think people, uh, law students, will understand like the castle doctrine. I think Zach, that's what you're getting to. It's happening in his own house on his own property. Are you allowed to defend yourself on your property? So the question, and Evan, I'll, I'll kick this to you because I, I think you know where I'm going with this. You know, this is a Zach. You referenced it. It's a 17 year old kid. John Morant is not a 17 year old kid. He is. If we're, again, hopefully nobody uh, reads too much into this, but John Moran is a really athletic individual. He throws down some ferocious dunks. I wouldn't be uh, saying that John Moran is like a frail individual, but like, you know, pick up basketball, things happen. Okay, Evan, uh, with that in mind, uh, what are we hearing from the courtroom uh, in terms of, I guess, the victim's arguments about John Moran? I, I find this part to be, let's say, interesting, interesting. Yeah, so uh, I sent you that post recently. The uh, the plaintiff's lawyer showed a video of John Morant dunking on Kevin Love uh, and used that as uh, quote-unquote evidence to say that Morant has uh, a lot of force in, in his uh, in his arms, uh, and that's how hard he would have hit the, the 17-year-old Josh. So uh, that was an interesting one. They used uh, Morant demonstrating how to pass a basketball because Morant had alleged that Joshua threw a basketball at his face. So she, she brought a basketball into court, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. She brought a basketball into court, had John Morant, a professional NBA player demonstrate a chess pass. Morant, his reaction the whole time was pretty funny. I think trying not to laugh, uh, trying to take it seriously. But uh, yeah, I think that's a first. I don't think I've seen a prop, like an actual uh, professional ball used in court to try to prove, you know, the lethal force used in some kind of punch. Yeah, Evan, going going right off of that, uh, there's a really funny little tidbit that's uh, from the cross-examination that happened in court uh, where they're asking him if the basketball was a lethal weapon, which is what he testified <laughs> it was. <Yeah. laughs> um, and he's, he replied that, who yes, te- he did. Who testified, who testified that it was a, legal, a lethal weapon? That would be, that would be Morant. Morant testified that a basketball was a lethal weapon. Yes, and then whenever he was questioned on it, uh, she, the the lawyer asked the question again. Is like you're you're saying that's a lethal weapon, and his response to that was, "quote It hurt." Okay, so let me get this straight. Okay, John Moran is testifying. So the is it, it okay? Just just so I have this, is it being alleged that the kid threw the ball at Moran? Yeah. So the the full the full facts is the kid threw the ball at his face. It hit Morant in the face. He pulled up his shorts and took a step towards him. Which and he Morant, a, did he have a did he have a gun exposed, Moran? I think that was part. That was the initial uh, allegation, not in court. But I remember he was motioning. There was some reference to a possible gun potentially being used. Is that not coming out in court? 
nothing in the immunity hearing anyway. He just said Joshua pulled up his pants, took a step. Morant said where he's from, that's a fighting stance. And uh, when he took the step forward, Morant hit him. Okay. Do we know what precipitated the basketball being uh, projectile like a weapon? I think just a couple frustrating losses on Joshua's side happens when you play an NBA All-Star as a 17-year-old. There's a viral clip that people search for it. Charles Barkley, like, bounces a ball. I think it's off Shaq's head when they were playing um, or his back. I've seen basketballs hurled at people. Interesting choice of weapon. Like, we talked about on the, on the podcast, like, Miles Garrett. Like, I don't know, he hits someone over the head with their helmet, their bare head. Like, yeah, that's that's kind of a weapon. That has nothing to do with the game. Having a basketball thrown at you, like, I don't know, that, that kind of happens. Okay, Zach, what <laughs> what is the testimony? I, I wanted to make sure we set this up. You You have some of the transcript? Yeah, so it the, the the original question that was asked was quote you as in Morant testified testified that this basketball was a weapon. Yes, to which he replied, quote, yes. <laughs> then the question was asked, well, if it was a weapon, is it a lethal weapon? She asked. And then his response was, quote, it hurt, which doesn't really answer the question, but it's it's definitely going to complicate I think the, uh, the the hearing of whether whether the, the castle doctrine in this, this immunity hearing can really go forward if it's successful or not. See, it's funny. When I first saw, Evan, when, without the context, when I first saw the, the clip and we saw that the basketball was being brought into court, I'm like, these lawyers are really stretching. Like, they're just trying to make a spectacle like the victim's lawyers, like bringing a basketball into court. But if Morant testified that the basketball was a weapon and the other side brings the basketball into court, you're almost making Morant look bad. Like, this thing is a weapon. Like, this basketball is a weapon. Uh, maybe it's more effective. I, I actually was kind of dubious that it was a smart move to bring it into court, but A, it brings more attention to the case because we're covering it probably because of those pictures. Um, and B, it's not, basketball is not a weapon. I, I can't, I can't imagine any scenario where basketball is used as a weapon, like, like a, a weapon weapon. Baseball. Uh, yeah. You could kill someone if you throw a baseball at them hard enough. Basketball. No. Football, no. Hockey puck, yes. Hockey puck can definitely be a lethal weapon, but there is no world where a football or a basketball can be a lethal weapon, unless you put it in like a cannon and you shoot it at someone's head. But we're talking about like the real way to, you know, actual gameplay usage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, sorry, Zach, go ahead. No, it's just, I think, I think that's the distinction she's really trying to, this, the attorney's really trying to make here, Dan, is that, you know, you can claim it's a weapon, but if you're claiming, you know, castle doctrine and, and that sort of thing, is it threat with a lethal weapon? Is it just, you know, a, a something being used in an in intimidating or in the way that makes it sort of a weapon? So it's and then bringing the, the the basketball into it sounds like she's trying to really distinguish between those two those two things for the for the purpose of the case. Yeah, and you know they they went back and forth on if anyone plays pickup basketball, you know what checking the ball is. Uh, you know, the, the plaintiff's lawyer was arguing that what Josh did was check the ball to Morant maybe really hard. You know, I, I've been hit with a hard check ball every now and then. You get hit in the face with a basketball when you play. It's not, like, super uncommon. It definitely hurts. Don't think at any point it starts a fight to that point. Um, but, yeah, I mean, demonstrating what a check ball is in court, I think, is an all-time clip. And I'm I'm so happy that it, it crossed my timeline this weekend. Um, well, Evan, we appreciate that you found it and we get to cover it on the show. So let's see. Morant's going to come back to the lowly Memphis Grizzlies. Um, I, one of my smart bets, by the way, shout out to us. I said my bet of the year was 
Los Angeles Rams over six and a half wins. They have six wins right now. I feel pretty good about that. Hopefully you guys tailed me on that. I had a bet of the year in basketball that I didn't tell anybody about, but I took uh, the Memphis Grizzlies under because I'm like, I'm not quite sure that uh, John Morant's going to come back with those ferocious dunks after what they're doing at court. So I was actually betting on the post suspension. So I was right for the wrong reasons, but we'll take it. Dan, one last thing before we move on, if I can. Uh, with the John Morant thing, his uh, his original – well, not his original, but his 25-game suspension that he had uh, was for, quote, conduct deemed detrimental to the league. And, I mean, I just had to bring that up, seeing as the name of our podcast is, in fact, Conduct Detrimental. I mean, it, it's too perfect not to mention. That was a great inclusion. And there are so many people that hear the podcast name, they're like, what is conduct detrimental? And I'm like, you, you've added yourself. You're not a sports fan. How do you not know what conduct detrimental is? It pops up. Those that know, know. And those that know, probably listen to this podcast. Okay, great, great call, Zach. Um, let's do a quick quick five minutes on the Chiefs fan. Um, I think the story is important. I think it is uh, one of my favorite topics uh, of defamation that kind of gets in the weeds here. So I, I imagine most listening to this podcast uh, maybe have heard about the scenario. Maybe not, um, but I think it's important enough that we should cover. So uh, I will we'll say it as it exactly as it appeared. There was a headline that Deadspin had about a week or two ago by an author named Karen J. Phillips, like C A R O N, Karan, maybe it's pronounced, pronounced. So the title of this Deadspin article reads The NFL needs to speak out against the Kansas City Chiefs fan in blackface. Native headdress. Okay. So Deadspin, just listen to the premise of this article, that they need to speak out against the Chiefs fan that was wearing blackface and a native headdress. Okay. So you guys are on the podcast. We're not showing this on video. If you just look up this article and you Google enough, you'll find it very quickly. What Deadspin did was take a picture of a child who maybe is like nine or 10. So it's a child. So that's number one. Okay. Still child shouldn't be wearing blackface in a native American headdress. Okay. The crazy part of this story, if you just read the headline and you just looked at the picture, the picture is of the kid's profile. It's of the right side of his face. So all you can see is basically his right cheek. Can't see anything on the left side. Interesting. What if I were to tell you that every other picture of this child showed a straight on picture where he had half of his face black and half of his face red. And then Deadspin, which is supposed to be a, a you know, a journalistic endeavor with media members to only use that one picture. That's the only picture that showed this child wearing blackface. Probably not newsworthy for Deadspin to write, but for then Deadspin to, I'm going to say this, my own opinion, seemingly maliciously put this title out there with, with an, a deceptive picture of his face for clickbait. That's what it was. It wasn't like a mistake because they're were, they were a news entity. They have to know that there were other pictures, let alone that there's some reporting, and it's not my reporting, but that the child might have been of Native American descent. Okay, so you got everything wrong. If you are a Native American, I would think it's okay if anybody's wearing a Native American headdress to, to have someone that is of Native American descent wearing that headdress. That seems to be okay. So you got both, potentially both elements wrong, but yeah, obviously objectively got the one wrong about him wearing blackface. We had two two-tone face on. So I gave a quote to a friend of the show, AJ Perez, who was covering this. He was all over this for front office sports. And the question was, is this defamation? So he's a guy's not a public figure. This little kid is a, certainly a private figure. So all you need for defamation against a private figure 
is that the thing was wrong, it was false, and it caused you harm. Now, for a private, for a public figure, we've talked about this a hundred times on the podcast, you need to show actual malice that the person that was making this defamatory comment about you knew it was false and was saying it anyway, for whatever reason, you know, they just, they knew it was false, they just said it anyway to hurt you or for whatever the reason. This kid is not a public figure. If this kid, for whatever reason, was was a public figure, I think you would, I can't guarantee you'd get actual malice, but you'd get pretty close with the clickbait nature of all this. But for the private nature element, I think certainly punitives would be on the table because of the true maliciousness that seems to be indicative. So it, this is an interesting kind of tug, pull and tug, tug and pull, whatever you want to call it. But they, it took them about a week, give or take, just about, Deadspin issued a retraction and they changed the uh, <laughs> changed the title to the NFL must ban native headdress and culturally insensitive face paint in the stands. Got rid of the objectively false part about blackface because it wasn't. But I think Deadspin is facing, if they haven't faced already by the time of this recording, I think that they're looking at a, a large defamation lawsuit on this. And I think the fact that they changed their headline tells you that they've finally done something wrong. But the lawyers were interacting with the journalist side and they're trying to figure this out. But the fact that this article gets that's posted with the word blackface and a hundred people looking at this scenario would not call it blackface. It's pretty bad in 2023 to make that kind of mistake. And this author, Karen Phillips, we, we say the good, we say the bad. This guy was refusing in the immediate aftermath, that 24 hour window to apologize, to issue retraction. He was standing by his reporting. Egregious, really egregious. And it's that type of conduct that might might kind of incentivize the other side to file a loss if they weren't otherwise inclined. If you issue a really quick retraction, what's the harm, right? But if you let this thing linger for days and days and days, the damages multiply, right? You have this thing out for days. People are writing extra stories. We're covering it on the podcast. This now becomes really a, a, a story about this this child who's kind of thrown into this. So it's pretty terrible, but I, uh, I think people should know of, of what's going on in that def defamation world um, in this day and age. So um, I guess good on Deadspin for changing the headline, but a little bit too late, a little bit too late. Were you guys familiar with this one or is, the, is this me just being in the weeds a little bit? I was not familiar with this. This was something you uh, you brought to my attention and I looked it up and yeah, there's there's a couple stories out there. I said the Daily Mail had something on it. So yeah, it was a, it was a good catch from you. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just felt bad and as a father you know uh I, I, some kid is just dragged into the media like i mean if if he had done the act and the act is what they thought it was like okay yeah i guess maybe it's newsworthy like that was pretty bad okay so that is the you know that's our sports little side of the show um i told you guys we had a special surprise gavin white was uh our dr pepper uh the real winner uh when, this is not a podcast that's going to slander uh ryan who should not have won, um, but then got the win with the uh, scorer's error. I'm okay with Ryan getting 100 grand, as long as Gavin gets 100 grand. I was in the mood for this switcheroo where Ryan should get 20 and Gavin should get the 100. No, Dr. Pepper is a big enough company. They were aware of the media storm that was happening. They were aware of the media, I don't know, uh, the uh, windfall of, I don't know, good PR if they were to do the right thing. So I think they did the right thing. So Gavin really talks about from soup to nuts. He talks about how he was selected for this process, his selection video. He talks about um, the souvenir size checks that were given, that were ripped up, how he found out about the controversy. And I think it's a really important lesson here, um, gentlemen. We do this podcast each and every week, sometimes twice a week, but more recently, once a week, 
we do a lot of uh, fun things. We have that Sports Lawyers Association Bar Night 1219 in New York City. If you have not already RSVP, we do a lot of fun. Just sports are fun. But every once in a while, we cover something that is a real life-changing event. So we have a lot of fun here. And I, I would certainly love all the people that come and support us and say nice things about what we do. But this is a cool opportunity to bring on someone like Gavin, who this little sports law universe and audience that we've carved out really helped make a difference in Gavin's life. So as opposed to getting 20 grand, Gavin gets $100,000. It's an 80 grand difference. And it's because of our sports law audience amplifying my initial tweet, helping uh, one of you who shall remain nameless dropped uh, my tweet. Actually, I think we, I don't know if we said this on the, on the on the interview, but Dave Portnoy was making fun of Gavin, not using my tweet at all. Just like he was just making fun of Gavin. Ohio State loses again. Uh -huh. And one of our followers, um, they asked to not be mentioned, dropped my tweet of the Gavin thing into Portnoy's replies and be like, not so fast, Dave. The kid at Ohio State kid actually may have won. Portnoy retweets it. And all of a sudden, this thing is like bananas viral. So, you know, uh, I say the importance the value of social media. I did a whole kind of soapbox post on it on LinkedIn. Social media, you never know who's going to look at your post. You never know whose life it's going to change. You never know who it's going to reach. So... PSA. So shout out to Gavin for coming on. We're happy to make a small difference in his life. But yeah, it was a pleasure having him on. So without further ado, let us kick it over to our interview with meteorologist major junior at the Ohio State University, Gavin White. The man, the myth, the legend, Gavin White. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you? Gavin, you're kind of like a celebrity. This is pretty cool having you on the podcast here. We've had some big celebrities on the show, but you might be, uh, I mean, you're one of a kind, honestly, your story, but um, I guess, I guess we'll start there. For those that don't know Gavin, Gavin, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to call it your 15 minutes because you can take this money and do any number of really special things with it. So you can open up any number of doors that people now know your name, but I will say I've seen this Dr. Pepper halftime challenge over years and years, I don't think anybody has been involved in a particularly newsworthy event other than winning like 100000 in tuition money, whatever it used to be. But Gavin, your story literally went around the world. Certainly, we were very well aware of it. Maybe we can start here. How did you get picked for this? Like, what's the selection process? And then we can certainly talk about what happened in the controversy afterwards. Yeah, definitely. Well, for one, I mean, I've grown up watching this. I'm a huge college football fan. So, I mean, just being able to see this and actually be able to take part in it is such a dream come true, uh, just on a, a fan base kind of level. Um, You're a but, freshman, sophomore? What year are you? Uh, I'm a junior. Okay, junior. Go Buckeyes. Yeah, yeah yes, sir. <laughs> but no, back in um, back in September, I came across the application for it because I was just kind of searching here and there to see if and when it went live. Um, and I stumbled across it like two weeks before the deadline was for it. Like, okay, it was create a 60 second video kind of talking about what you want to do with your uh, career wise and what the scholarship would mean to you financially and just kind of present it in a creative way. So with studying atmospheric sciences, I made like a weather broadcast kind of video. Cool. Um, and then obviously they really liked it. Early November, I got a phone call that, Hey, so something so from Dr. Pepper, the whole selection team's on here. Uh, we really liked your video. We're going to send you to the big 12 game in Dallas. Congratulations. Wow. Kind of <laughs> very shocking. It was in the middle of the afternoon was not expecting to get that call at all so it was very uh made it a very very nice day here upon hearing that news november was a big month all around for, for ohio state very cool so gavin i guess we can we can talk about this so the the clip and again you know we've talked about in the show before people i'm sure have seen it you know people know the rules of the dr pepper challenge people i'm sure were giving you a lot of uh of smack giving the kind of like basketball pass so that, that seems to be the consensus so people complain about that 
But, you know, the winner here does get life-changing tuition money. So $100,000 goes to the winner's tuition and the consolation prize is 20 grand. So, you know, it's as much as it is kind of a fun halftime show, it is really big money. So I'm happy that we're sitting here today with uh, you having 100,000 in theory in your pocket for tuition. But I guess we'll we'll talk about what happened. And I'm, I, I don't know the answer to some of these. I don't really answer all these questions, but... So, Gavin, I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective, and certainly, you know, uh, our audience, uh, whoever helped get this to the to the masses, what the, the you know the injustice that occurred, you know, I, I guess we can all take a little bit of a hockey assist. But, Gavin, you obviously won the competition, so you get all the credit. Your form, I guess you didn't think I was going to get this granular. I was watching you. You had the right <laughs> form in. In terms of quantity of shots, I could tell, like, you were firing up a lot more shots. How many times have you watched this clip over? That's I guess that's the first question. Probably at least a dozen times by now between so, between the, the TV clip right. and what my dad filmed there. So. <laughs> so so the funny, funny thing is like I'm watching this as a fan. I'm sitting I'm from New York. So we're from across the world. Obviously, I, I've always talked about this in the show. Sports is a universal language. Sports law. You know, we're just explaining different sports issues, but we're all sports fans. And I'm watching you as a sports fan. And I'm like, this guy's got pretty good form. He's firing up a lot of shots. And I was genuinely surprised. I was half watching when you and Ryan went to the first round. I'm like. I'm not sure how uh, Ryan is keeping up with Gavin because Gavin up is firing up a lot, you know, quantities, hitting shots, right? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So more shots, very good. So in, in the first overtime, same thing. You you got the shots down, right? You're just keeping your feet set. You're throwing balls up. And I, it was funny. I watched your reaction when you were done. I think you thought you had won. And then when you, what was the first thing after after you finished shooting your last shot? I think you hit your last couple. What's going through your mind at that point? Yeah, I threw my last one. I heard the ref blow the whistle. So I looked at the scores. And at that moment, I read 16-15. So I pointed and started lifting my hands in celebration. And then um, Ryan's ticked up to 16. And it immediately brought my hands down. But in my mind, I didn't think anything weird was happening. Then I just kind of thought, oh, he got one more off at the very last second. Because I mean, I'm not watching him. I can't see what's going on over there while I'm throwing. But I thought I won. And then I thought he, he tied it. That's what I thought. The scoreboard operator is human. Do you know any? Is it is it automated? Do we know? Um, it's the refs are doing it. Refs the are doing it live. So yes. there was two controversies. Number one, that the count was just inaccurate, that it was for, for Ryan, and we've talked about this in the show, that it was, it shouldn't have been 6-6. Six, six. It should have been, if anything, 6-5. And then there's a small contingency that says that Ryan's last shot was actually after the buzzer. So that's why you saw that 6-5 very quickly. So in any event, you know, like I'm sitting there, I'm sure a lot of people were watching it live. Maybe people weren't watching it that closely, but I'm like, this is crazy. So I rewatched it. And then uh, I saw people on Twitter were talking about, obviously we got the word out. So, you know, as fate would have it, uh, you know, you go to that second overtime, right. And in your head, you don't know anything, right. You don't know about a miscount, a late clock. You don't, you're not thinking about any of that stuff. Correct. No, I mean, it's just, okay, we're going on to the next tiebreaker that they assured us we probably won't get to this point anyways. It's brand new this year going into these double overtimes. So in that moment, I mean, I, I didn't think anything weird was going on. I had no way of knowing it. My phone is in my pocket. Wouldn't be able to look at it for another half hour anyways. It's just lining up to take the next shot. Oh, so I'm rooting for you. I'm, I'm like, okay, if Gavin hits this, no one will really care about what happens in the first overtime. So I, at this point, I have fired off no tweets. I'm sure no one else has at this point. So you miss your your sudden death shot. And then uh, Ryan goes and hits his clutch shot by Ryan. Shout out to Ryan. We're not saying anything mm-hmm. bad about Ryan. You know, I'm happy both of you guys get money here. Okay, so now take us through this part. And then we'll, we'll talk about the, kind of the aftermath. Immediately, Ryan gets the close up. Ryan gets the the picture, you know, the video of him. He's holding a big check. Did they give you a big check, by the way? I didn't see any big check pictures. They did, yes. After- I got a, a big afterwards, yeah. What's on? Today, 20, 20 or 100? 20 right now. Oh, um, they, didn't, they didn't fix it? 
No, so that's it's in the process. So they they oh. said they they print one of each, you know, not knowing who's going to win it. And then as soon as it's over, they rip the other one just to kind of protect themselves so no one can run off with it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, they so, they have a hundred thousand written out for both of you, and yes. 20, they shouldn't have ripped that one up with it. They shouldn't have. They shouldn't we, have. We threw the challenge flag. <laughs> no, they um they they reassured me they're going to print a new one and, and ship it home. So I'll I'll have it eventually that I can start showing off. But um. No, well, not related, related question. Independent of not having the big check, do you have? Did, did they give you the funds that equal a hundred thousand, or are we still waiting for that? Yes, it's it's in the process. Okay, it's 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 a lengthy process to get it divvied up to which loans get it, which uh, school, which semester, all that, all that good stuff. So I mean, it's in the process. See, this this part's important, and and nothing nothing bad, obviously. So people, some people were thinking like, yeah, they're going to give Gavin a bag of cash, and he's going to get a hundred grand. I'm like, well. I didn't see the contract here, but they're saying 100000 towards tuition. So I would think that Gavin needs to actually pay his tuition and then he gets reimbursed or, or, or loans paid off. But it's certainly not you get 100000 and they trust you to uh, to spend the money. Uh, it's, that's not yeah. makes sense. Yeah, no, my bank account will never see that money. <laughs> it, all, it all go to the loans or to the schools. So. Um, no, that's very cool. So, okay. So now that we've got the logistics figured out, tell me what goes through your head. Um, you know, when when do you realize that something has gone afoot? Like, and obviously... Kevin, the reason you're on this podcast now, you reached out to me. Uh, I thought, you know, the moment it kind of passed, I didn't know if you were paying attention to the kind. I'm, sure, I'm sure you would have heard of it. But uh, when you reached out to me to thank me, which I thought was lovely, I'm like, I'd love to hear Gavin's story. So kind of fill us in from like point you, you you're on the field with your dad. I'm sure your dad doesn't know. But what how do you figure out that there is some brewing controversy? Because they fixed this during the game. So it must have something must have happened. Right. Um. I mean, it was after the toss had ended to the time I got back to our seats in the stands. It was about a half hour in between then. And during that time, I just could not look at my phone because it was literal handshake, 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 picture, 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 interview, interview, all all that stuff going on behind the scenes. I mean, I had no clue oh, anything wow. was happening. Half hour passes, finally get back to the stands. My dad shows me his phone and it's mom sending him everything she's seen on Facebook about something's going on. I pull out my phone. It's, I'm not kidding, over a hundred notifications just of people saying all sorts of things, congratulations and, and disappointment, all, all that stuff pull out Twitter. I see, among other things, I see your tweet. I see wow. a tweet from um, McAfee, I believe. I see the hashtag justice for Gavin is trending. <laughs> uh, I just see all this stuff going on. And then we start watching the videos and we realize, oh, there is something else is going on here. Meanwhile, while this is happening, it was where we were in the stadium. It was three rows that was all reserved for Dr. Pepper people. The The big wig reps that were with the, the Big 12 game, they all kind of disappeared during this time frame. So we figured they were off dealing with the, the PR hit that was going on online. Lo and behold, they come back about another half hour later, collect us, um, take us somewhere else in the stadium and say, hey, there was an on-field counting error. So Gavin was the rightful winner, but we're going to award you both with the $100,000 check. Oh, Ryan was there when so, it happened. Yes. He, he's probably worried that he might, they might do a little switcheroo here. They might. They yes, might... I'm, I'm sure he was. Oh, wow. I'm sure he was. Did you speak but, um, I mean, I, I, I might be concerned. I mean, he, he, he seemed worried, but as soon as they said, we're going to give you both 100, wow. I mean, he was very relieved. I mean, of course, before I knew any of this was happening, I was very happy for him for winning because, I mean, that's huge for anyone. But then it was reciprocated. And when they announced you're both going to get it, he was very happy for me. So, I mean, it was. It, we we embraced each other. It was a very very exciting time. It's very cool. Um, and I and I will say, I think Dr. Pepper is probably happy with the result here, as we talked about kind of offline. Like, no one Dr. Pepper halftime show begins and ends, and no one really thinks about it. But this is a story that will kind of live on. It'll probably be a if I ever write a sports law uh law law school textbook, I'll give you at least at least a footnote, if not you know not your own page in in the book here. 
but I think this dedicated a lot, a lot of additional attention. So, you know, I'll, some uh, required uh, viewing for you afterwards. There's a very famous case in law school about Pepsi offering a Harrier jet. Are you familiar with this? What, what happened? I'm not. Um, you could look it up afterwards, but Pepsi had a promotion that they said, if you collect a certain amount of Pepsi points, you could get a, a jet, like a fighter jet, which obviously they didn't mean. Um, but this guy collected enough points and should, it's on Netflix. It's a big, uh, big uh, documentary about it but pepsi doesn't give the guy the jet and they take him to court and they're fighting and it gets really litigious and the guy never gets the jet and he spends a, a lot of money litigating this case so we were you know in our little legal circles we're like gavin's got a case here it's not a harrier jet which is worth like tens of millions of dollars it's the difference between 120,000. and if you're thinking what dr pepper spent to put all this this halftime show on and bring you guys in and you know uh give these awards high refs i'm like the delta between 20 and 100,000. That's probably in the marketing budget. They should probably do the right thing. Don't take it away from Ryan. Shout out to Ryan. We, we support Ryan. But let's give them both 100000 because the, the extra attention that you brought as a spokesperson, as an ambassador, it's like, you're probably, it's probably worth 80K and avoid, as, as you kind of mentioned, to avoid the kind of social media storm that's going on and to kind of buy your way out of it. I, I think Dr. Pepper ends up looking great. So shout out to Dr. Pepper. I think they did the right thing all around. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I mean, it's... I mean, not to bash on Coke or Pepsi, but I don't see them doing anything like this for college students at all. So, I mean, Dr. Pepper, for one, they can do whatever they want with it. It's their their thing. But the fact that they did choose to do the right thing, despite the online pressure, they still chose to do the right thing, um, which I, I applaud. I can't applaud them enough for it. This is a pro Dr. Pepper podcast. So, you know, uh, listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably uh, you go to the restaurant, you ask for a drink. I, I am one of the few that says, what other sodas do you have on the menu? So, listen, I, I do not discriminate. I big Dr. Dr. Pepper guy. So, Gavin, I guess uh, you are now, uh, I guess, in, in sports law folklore, you will be referenced amongst all these random cases that come up from time to time. It is very exciting that you're taking the 100000 and pursuing a career, I think you said, in meteorology? Correct, yes. So what, what does that entail, meteorology? What's what's the uh, the, the plan post-graduation? Are you going to yeah, I mean, a, I'm, a local weatherman? I mean, is that in the cards? That's in the cards. I mean, I'm not fully certain which way I want to go. I mean, broadcast and local news, I mean, definitely there's something very interesting, but at the same time, something more operational within the National Weather Service um, is also very appealing to me. I'm very open to both doors and I'm hoping internship wise, something will guide me one way or the other, um, but definitely very open. We'll, we'll be doing something in meteorology. It's just a matter of figuring out which avenue within it I'll be taking. Well, if you have a change of heart and you decide to go to law school, I'm happy to be a resource <laughs> any way that I can, but Certainly very exciting. And um, listen, I don't know if you've won any other than the the giant check you're going to get, if you've won any, any awards, but I'm certainly happy to give you uh, the official uh, nomination. We have a very selective criteria to be mentioned in the Sports Law Hall of Fame. But I think, Gavin, this story <laughs> has at least got you a nomination. I'm not sure if you're going to get the full votes, but definitely Sports Law Hall of Fame nomination for sure. I appreciate it. I'll put it on my resume. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, Gavin, thank you so much for joining the show. I love your story. Uh, and uh, listen, you have a great day. And I guess, uh, who? oh, I guess we should ask you this. Who are you rooting for in the college football playoffs? I think I, I wouldn't be doing a service if I didn't ask you that question. That would be uh, anyone but Michigan. I had it's a, a good day if Michigan loses. I, I had a feeling. All good, Gavin. Uh, listen, uh, definitely stay in touch. Congrats on everything. And thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. So that was Gavin White. Uh, Gavin was fantastic. It was great having him on the episode. And yeah, again, I, I just think like we got a lot of people that listen to the podcast, which is great. Um, you know, we certainly we have a lot of different people we reach. I wasn't kidding when I inducted him into the Sports Hall of Fame. Like 
this uh, this was probably at least one of the cooler things that I've ever been a part of in our little sports law journey. So it was really special when Gavin reached out. So, you know, I don't know. I don't, I certainly, you know, we, we as a show can't take credit for Gavin, but it was a collective effort. But if you see something, say something, just like, you know, like sometimes, you know, you got to be on the lookout for bad things in New York City. If you see, if you're on the lookout for injustices in the sports world, you see something, you say something, and sometimes occasionally you make a difference. So good lesson. Shout out to Gavin. Gavin, um, any uh, sports law class I'm teaching anywhere in the country, he can sit in on it for free. I'm not going to charge him anything. But we never charge anyone anything for this podcast or sitting on sports law classes. So all good. Okay. For uh, To wrap this episode up, final segment of the show, our Better Edge Best Bet segment of the week. Um, Evan, I think you are undefeated in your best bets, so we'll go with you. Zach, you are going second. I was going to call you winless, but I don't know about that. Okay, Evan, <laughs> you're up first. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so a line that jumped out to me. Absolutely love it. Dallas Cowboys plus 105 against the Bills. I know the Bills are having a bit of a resurgence. Cowboys are a top three team in the NFL. Josh Allen is turnover prone. Dallas defense is elite. Can't believe they're underdogs. Don't care. It's in Buffalo. 100%. Dallas Cowboys plus 105. Okay. I like that. Short, sweet, to the point. You're betting against my Buffalo Bills, but I, I can't knock it. I'm not on the Bills this week. Okay. Zach, what do you got? And it cannot be a Wake Forest bet. Oh, don't you worry. Not a Wake Forest bet this time. I'm going with uh, the 49ers, my NFL team. Uh, the 10 and 3 playing the 3 and 10 Cardinals spreads 12 and a half points. Uh, I think the 49ers easily cover that. They beat the Eagles by 23 points. Um, and they were 10 and one at the time, I think. No, 10 and 0 at the time. I, I think that'll be an easy, easy cover there. I really like the 49ers this weekend. Okay. I like the pick. I like both picks. They're both pretty good. I have a line. Uh, we'll stick with the NFL. And again, uh, Better Edge is our promo code conduct for $20 free on sign up. Good place to do your all, all of your betting, including those guys have squares now, which I think is pretty sweet. So. You want to check out squares on Better Edge. Don't want to just do them in the Super Bowl. You want to do them halfway through the football season. You're watching a random game on a Monday night, on a Thursday night, or maybe on a Saturday. I think we have three Saturday games this week. Head over to Better Edge. My pick, it's the most suspicious line of the week. So the, sometimes I'll, from time to time, I'll see these. So the, the Atlanta Falcons are in the midst of a playoff race. They could still win the division. They're 6-7 and seven in the NFC South. They are traveling to Carolina to face the lowly Carolina Panthers, who are 1-12. and 12. Mind you, Carolina does not have their draft pick, so they are not in the tank. They are actually trying to win games, but they're somehow 1-12. in 12. So the 6-7 and seven Atlanta Falcons really trying to win games, okay? Then you have the 1-12 and 12 Panthers. They played earlier in the year in Atlanta, and Atlanta won 24-10. This line doesn't make any sense to me. It makes no sense to me. Carolina Panthers are only a three-point dog to the Atlanta Falcons, despite being five games worse. And despite looking like utter garbage anytime they step on a football field, they were destroyed 28 to 6 by the Saints, who are not a good team. Uh, they lost to the Bucks the week before, the Titans, all like quasi playoff teams. The Atlanta Falcons are a quasi playoff team. I am not quite sure why this line is three, but it doesn't make sense to me. The Falcons should be favored by a lot more than three. Guys, I hate to do it. Going Carolina Panthers plus three. This line makes absolutely no sense. We zag. When everyone's like, oh, yeah, Falcons are going to kill him. Should be six. Should be seven. Going to Carolina Panthers. Bryce Young, I'm in a two-quarterback league. He has been a rat quarterback the entire year. He's had one one game where he's been above 16 points. Um, I'm all in on, on Bryce Young this week. Maybe I shouldn't be. 
Um, I have a two quarterback league. Every quarterback in the league is started. They're on a team. That Dak Prescott, he's great. I got to start someone. It was either Zach Wilson, MVP Mitch Trubisky, or Bryce Young. I'm going with Bryce Young. We're rolling the dice. We're all over the Carolina Panthers. This might be that cost me my entire season, but listen, I'm I'm rolling with the Panthers this weekend. I have to. Okay. Oh, Zach, you're about to tell me my my bet sounded terrible. Please do, because everyone every time someone says that, I win. I wasn't going to say it was terrible. I'm saying you're putting a lot of a lot of faith in them to. I mean, you've got a uh, an undefeated streak, so got to keep that streak going. So going to be a really interesting Sunday to watch and see if that's uh that's actually the case or not. What state is Wake Forest in? What state? North Carolina. Carolina. Okay, Carolina, Carolina, we're on the same team. It wasn't a trick question. What do you think? I was just like questioning whether you actually went to Wake Forest because maybe. Well, yeah, I, th- I thought you were saying like what state the team is in, which is not a good one, but not a good one. Um, Sam Harbin's pretty good though. That he is. That he is. Not a demon deacon anymore though, because he was like, "Let me get out of this. Let me get out of Wake Forest. Let me go to a real school." Well, you know, they just leased him for a year. We developed him, so. That's fair. Um, one of my wife's friends, shout out if she's listening to this, to Monica. She's not, you know, I think she's like a decent sports fan. And she goes to me, she goes, what's the deal with Sam Hartman? I'm like, like I'm like, did I miss like a sports little story? Did I miss something? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, he's really attractive. And I'm like, I guess so. Good for Sam Hartman. Did not know that. So he apparently is that attractive that he has proliferated the non-sports world. He's just that attractive. People are talking about Sam Hartman. So good for Sam Hartman. Maybe someday one of the three of us will just be that attractive that just people are talking about. So like, you see that guy, Evan Mattel? Great haircut. That guy's looking great. Zach, did I commit any HR violations? I feel like we're good. I feel like I didn't say anything too bad. No, I think you're, I think you're good. I mean, he is an objectively attractive man. I didn't ask Evan because Evan, Evan thinks I did. He's like, no, no, no. Kid. Sam Hartman is an objectively attractive man. I can't deny it. <laughs> okay. I'm wondering how many listeners are, are Googling Sam Hartman as we're listening to this. But with that, we will leave you with that. Thank you to... Uh, John, Zach, Evan, and of course, the MVP of this show and the MVP of all the shows for the remainder of 2023, Gavin White, official inductee, not nominee, inductee into the Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Hall of Fame. I think he's the first and maybe the only one ever if we forget about this segment. But for now, he's the only one. Maybe we'll send him a plaque. Oh, speaking of plaques, we have announced the winners of the Conduct Detrimental Writing Competition. We want to thank everyone for participating. If you did not win, there will be um, opportunities for you to get involved in Conic Detriment in a meaningful way, but we really needed to keep this tight. We got way more submissions than we thought we were going to get, so we wanted to keep it tight, but we will announce the winners shortly. Thank you, everyone, to participating, and uh, always opportunities to publish. If you enjoy doing it and you want to get the, your name out more, um, and if you want to publish what you wrote for us, we're certainly okay doing that, but yeah, ConicDetrimental.com, the sports law website. We haven't really been pushing authorship as much as the uh, semester has been winding down, but we are always looking for writers for ConicDetrimental.com. A pretty good uh, audience for people people putting up stuff on the site. So um, all good. ConicDetrimental.com, ConicDetrimental, the podcast. Oh, oh my God, guys, can I say one more thing? Evan, Zach, can I say one more thing? Of course, Dan. I'm so excited. You're excited, so I'm excited. I am excited. Um, We got a lot of different things in the tank. So writing competition is about to be done. We are going to, we were not going to do this, but we kept getting people asking us about it. So we did the 10 under 10 top, I don't know, like top 10 or 10 people that are in sports with under 10 years of legal experience. So we were going to retire this for like five years and then bring it back in five years just because like whatever. Um, But we got a lot of requests to bring it back this year. So 
if Stephanie gets Stephanie Weisenberger, our lovely own Stephanie Weisenberger, puts a nice fancy graphic together, we're going to do this all over again. So if you um, know of someone who is within 10 years of their law school graduation and they're working in sports, they don't have to be a practicing lawyer, as we learned last year, just have to have a JD. You can start sending us in those nominations. At some point, we'll do a real formal like submission process, but you know, you could just email us someone who you think is good. And if it's yourself, we're not going to make someone else self-nominate you. You could just say, Dan, I'd like to be considered and we will consider you. We're going to make this pretty easy, but yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun doing it last year. Uh, I'm told it's one of the cooler things we've done. So we're going to do it again. We give the people what they want. Okay. Call it a day here. Zach, Evan, great job. Thank you, John. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you, Dan Wallach, who um, as of November is back in the United States. Shout out to Dan. More podcasts from Dan on the horizon, but um, we'll leave it there. And again, next week, the NIL Hour is going to tackle all the latest in college sports. So um, it is getting late on this lovely Wednesday night. So we will end here for myself, Zach, Evan, everybody else in Connect Detrimental. We'll see you next time on another episode of the Sports Law Podcast, Conduct Detrimental. <laughs>